0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
0: As a difficult school year comes to a close in Connecticut, we wanted to re-air a special episode. For many students, reading has been an important way of dealing with all of the challenges of the pandemic. But for too many students, it's hard to connect with their favorite characters. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, Connecticut author Chandra Prasad says her book, Damselfly, is a nod to the Lord of the Flies, but it was important to include girls of different backgrounds and perspectives in her story. This hour, we're talking about young adult literature and why it's important to reflect diversity and representation in books. Coming up, we'll hear from London Carter Williams. She's a seventh grader from Waterbury who wrote a book about going to her first protest. But first, Chandra Prasad is here to talk about her writing and how not seeing herself represented in books as a kid, now drives her will to be a more inclusive author. Chandra, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thanks so much, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start with the most obvious question, which is why you chose to become an author?
1: Well, it really started early for me. Um, My aunt, her name is Maggie Swanson, is a very prolific children's book illustrator. She's actually illustrated over 100 children's stories. So when I was a child, it was always amazing to go to her house and to look at her art studio, which was basically just a small room crammed with beautiful illustrations and book covers um, that were about to come out. And that inspired me because I realized not only could I make a living in the book industry like she was, but I could also you know, be a female doing it. and. Um, She was a huge inspiration for me wanting to be in the book industry and and specifically wanting to be an author.
0: And this idea that we talk about often in this year, where people are having new conversations about representation and diversity and seeing different voices in these spaces that we did not always anticipate, seems to be very true within the field of young adult literature. And, and you've written a number of works, you have this great anthology but you've also made this very successful foray into young adult literature. What is it about that genre that attracts you?
1: Um, I have always read young adult literature as if it's just you know general literature. And I think more and more that line between you know what is in a young adult book and what is a you know a, a so-called regular book has become invisible as the young adult market has gotten stronger and stronger. Um, there's just so many really, really good young adult books out there and strong young adult authors. And that line has evaporated. And what we see in the publishing industry is that a huge swath of adults read young adult literature. So, um, you know, it's, it's a it's a popular area to get into. But for me personally, um, I find that I connect to young adult literature a lot more. Sometimes it's just more, Foundational. It addresses uh, you know themes like good and evil and themes that I'm I'm naturally attracted to. So it, it was a for me it was a natural leap to go from general fiction to young adult fiction.
0: So how do you then find that connection? Because one of the things that I see as a strength of young adult literature is that when it's done really well, it has the voice of young people and not the voice of adults trying to represent young people how do you stay connected to that so that that authentic voice comes out in your work
1: I mean it definitely helps that I have uh, kids and I have a, a one of my children is in that young adult category he's a teen so um, I read a lot of what he's reading and that helps me keep my finger on the pulse of the market um, it also helps that the young adult market, somehow naturally has a lot more diversity in it. I think there's a lot more attention being paid to including um, different voices. We see actually these hashtags, own voices, and we need diverse books specifically for that young adult market. And because I I gravitate toward that naturally, it's it's just a good fit for me.
0: There seems to be this tension or challenge of you know traditional literature for young people where i believe the report says 40% of YA books still feature a white man a white male character or a main character there and there's also this huge percentage of these books that have animal characters as leads as an author and as someone who's committed to promoting this literature why do you think there's still this resistance to diversifying main characters?
1: You know, there's just such a long history of, um, of a very narrow definition of what's acceptable in the publishing market, still in the Western canon. And, and you guys all know that the Western canon is kind of the the books that are put on a, the pedestal as seen as, as seen as the most important or the most pivotal. You know, the vast majority of, of those are still... Uh, male centric, they're, um, you know, American and uh, European men have written them. And, you know, that's still kind of front and center. But fortunately, we are seeing a lot of pushback to that. Um, There's an organization that measures the number of diverse books coming out. And that means not only the books that have um, diverse characters, but also the books that are written by people of color or LGBTQ, and we do see a steady rise in those numbers, but we still have a huge way to go. Um, in 2016, only six percent of new children's books were by Black, Latinx, and Native authors combined. So you know we still we have a long, long way to go.
0: What are some ways that we can disrupt that? disparity then? Is it encouraging people to see themselves as authors to tell these stories? Do you think there's something structural within the publishing industry that makes it difficult to do that? Or do you think it's about readers' appetite?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's definitely both. I mean, in publishing, we need more people of color at the higher ranks so that they are the decision makers in terms of what is coming out, and you know, we do need more work in that area. But one positive that I have seen, and it's been really, really um, heartening, is that I see schools using um, texts that were not previously thought to be so-called important, um, using those in the classroom. And another trend I see is the pairing of uh, classic books with young adult books so um and they're called linked texts and some examples would be um huckleberry finn by mark twain and the absolutely true diary of a part-time part-time indian by sherman alexi um or the scarlet letter by nathaniel hawthorne and speak by laurie halse anderson these books are related thematically um and sometimes by character too and when kids read both of them together, they are actually able to draw more from each book individually by the compare-contrast process.
0: So let's talk about one of your books that you know, challenges that notion of who the protagonist should be in a story that brings together that sort of classic look back, but also really thinking about what it means to have a female lead. And that is your book, Damselfly. And it's about this lead female protagonist who gets stranded on an island with other people. Talk to us about that book and why you think it has been so wildly popular.
1: You know, it's interesting. I wrote this book, Damselfly, as a direct response to Lord of the Flies for the very same reasons we're talking about When I was in eighth grade, I remember reading Lord of the Flies in the classroom. And I remember my teacher saying, in creating Lord of the Flies, William Golding created the perfect microcosm. And I remember being in eighth grade thinking to myself, no, he didn't because in this world that he's created, there are no female characters. Um, There are no characters of color. All the characters are British schoolboys um, of more or less the same socioeconomic cla- uh, status. And um, that was really par for the course, you know, back when I was in eighth grade quite a while ago. Um, and sadly, s- still today, um, more books than not are like that, which isn't to say that Lord of the Flies isn't worthy of being read. I mean, it is a phenomenal book, but. I just remember wanting to see a story in that vein, seeing a survival story with female characters who are strong, female characters at the heart of the story and wanting to know how that same kind of story would play out. So when I became an author, I decided, you know, that's that's my chance to write, write this story. And so Damselfly, it's not a retelling of Lord of the Flies by any stretch, but it is kind of an homage to it. Um, and it is female centric and it does include a lot of characters of color. And the story does play out differently because of these aspects.
0: You know, one of the strengths of the book I think as well and, and really your approach to writing is that often when people talk about literature, they talk about the connections we have, their notion of people of color is very narrow. They see it as a particular group or a particular experience and your work opens up our view of people of color, of how people move through those identities, but also, as you say, the tremendous diversity that exists within communities. How important is it for young people who are reading these books to see the fullness of themselves represented?
1: It's so important because, I mean, I think all of us can look back and and remember the books that were pivotal to us when we were young. And, um, You know, books are really like a mirror being held up to civilization. So if you never see a character like yourself in any way, there's definitely a feeling of invisibility that kids have. You know, that's not to say that you need to see a character exactly like yourself in looks and behavior and all that. But if you never see characters like that, then there is a sense that, you know, your story might not be as important as other people's stories. So that I try to keep with me as an author And very specifically, I'm multiracial, so I'm half Asian. And still to this day, there are very, very, very few books that have strong multiracial characters in them. In fact, um, it was only as recent as the year 2000 that the census even allowed people to be more than one race on the census form. So, you know, there is a long history of multiracial people just literally not existing. And um, even now, less than well less than 1% of books either are by multiracial authors or feature significant multiracial characters. So in my young adult books, I've I have two so far, and I have my anthology, I've definitely made it a point to have significant, very significant multiracial characters at the heart of those stories.
0: You know, there's a story that recently came out of North Carolina where a mother of a student in a private school, um, one of few black students in the school, did not want the class to read Fences by August Wilson because she was fearful that having those students in that setting reading that classic play, if you will, would present one particular view of African-Americans. And she was fearful that that text would then promote stereotypes. How do you balance that in literature of wanting to tell these stories, of wanting to showcase the diversity that exists within communities, but also understanding that how it will be received by author by readers may not be how the author intended
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a point that I understand. I do have the honor and privilege of talking to a lot of classrooms about Damselfly. Um, This year, I've been doing that remotely. Um, But I I do have the honor of speaking with many middle school and and high school students. And I would say that kids are a lot smarter and more perceptive than we adults give them credit for. I, I think that they get things that we, you know, we fear they won't, and they get subtlety and context. So I, I'm a lot more optimistic that kids can can see what we fear they won't see. Um, but I get that point and that that this person was making. And there was an editorial recently in the New York Times by Deneen Milner, and that editorial was Black Kids Don't Wanna Read About Harriet Tubman all the time. And her message was um, that there aren't enough children's books featuring. Black characters and characters of color focusing on anything but the degradation and endurance of, of those people. Um, and that was a, a very good point because in books, you want to, f- of course, present history as it unfolded and as things stand now. That's absolutely pivotal and important. But you also want to have stories about just everyday life and everyday beauty that you know, kids experience that's not always big theme focused. So I think we need to have both of those things in our books for kids.
0: Chandra Prasad is the author of Damselfly and the upcoming book, Mercury Boys. We'll continue our conversation after the break. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, how can a bookstore disrupt our notions of literature by promoting greater inclusion? We'll hear how One New Haven Bookstore is building community and highlighting new voices. But now we're talking to Chandra Prasad, author of the young adult book, Damselfly. In a year when all of us are spending more time on screens, I asked Chandra how we can encourage young people to develop a love of reading.
1: There's no question that this has been a really difficult year for everyone. You know, there's always been that, who's going to win? Is is, is screen going to win or are, are kids going to win in terms of uh, not, you know, playing outside or, or doing traditional kids things that don't involve screen? And this year has proven that the screen has kind of won, right? I mean, we've been so reliant on screens for education and, and kids not being able to see one another regularly have relied on screens to... Um, talk to their friends or kind of catch up with other people. Um, So I do think, you know, knock on wood, when, when we are in a healthier place in this country and worldwide, hopefully we'll get away from screens some more because I do think kids need that time to kind of curl up in a chair with a book or, you know, go outside or kind of interact in a very normal way using screens all the time changes lives. And and we all know that. I think everyone with a, you know, with a phone knows that. So I'm hoping that when things return to some sort of normal, we can get back to being less screen reliant.
0: You know, I I said to you as we were talking uh, before this interview that my daughter read Damselfly with her class and the beauty of technology and this sort of hybrid learning is that I've been able to eavesdrop on some of the conversations she's having with her class and with her friends about the books that she's reading. And there is a line from Damselfly that really stood out to her and, you know, listening to her talk about it with her class. And that line was, don't have hope, have certainty. What does that line mean for you?
1: Well, Kalila, I'm so glad you you told me that. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, and and before I answer that question, I just want to say that I agree with you that there have been unexpected moments of of beauty in this time. You know, where you're saying you get to overhear what your daughter's doing with her class. You know, as as difficult as this time has been, um, it has brought in some ways us closer to our families. Um, I think in that sense, have ho- don't have hope, have certainty that means it's up to us to have a better future. You know, it's up to us to act and to be the way of change. I think blindly hoping or, or praying for it at this point isn't going to guarantee anything. And, and we see that more than ever in so many ways, whether it be uh, race relations or politics or the environment, that we have to be that change that the world needs.
0: I appreciate that you have affirmed and lifted up the power and agency that we all have, especially in a moment when it seems that so much is beyond our control, to not lose sight of how what we do every day can actually have a positive impact, whether it's the stories that we are telling, whether it's the people that we're listening to or the connections that we are making. Tell us about your upcoming book, Mercury Boys, because I think the release of that and the timing of that will be so key for lifting up what we've discussed.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, Mercury Boys is coming out in 2021. And what was most enjoyable for me about that book was that it connects to old photography, um, these photographs called daguerreotypes, and they were used predominantly um, around 1850 to 1880. And so I was able to visit that history, you know, what these these big sweeping changes that were taking place at that time, Um, women's right to vote, There were just um, we were, you know, ending a war, we were building up our economy in the United States, there were just sweeping changes taking place. And What was most enjoyable to me was i I was able to connect that to what's happening today and i think um you know in studying history and in studying what has already happened we can kind of predict what will happen in the future and like you said how important small groups are how important um just individual actions are to to greater consequences and we we see that more than ever
0: we often need that reminder that with all of the challenges we face, the uncertainty that we may face, that there is precedent for that. And to be able to combine that historical memory with also this sort of future forward approach makes the book stand out what are you reading either with your young adult reader or with the people that you sort of think of this is what I want to read in order to satisfy my curiosity? What's on your reading list?
1: I've read a, quite a few um, really good middle grade and, and young ag- adult novels recently. Um, one of them is Kira Kira by Cynthia Kodohata and it's about a Japanese family that has moved to the South during the 1950s. And um, it's what this family goes through and how it copes and how it comes together as a family um, when one of the daughters falls ill that is so impactful and timeless. Um, I was really, really, I was just astounded by this book. It's called Kira Kira. Um, another really great book is All American Boys, which is you know pretty popular. It's by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Keely. And it's about two teens, one black, one white, who are grappling with the repercussions of a terrible, terrible violent act that leaves uh, their school community and community shaken. That's a great book. And um, I also liked a book called Front Desk by Kelly Yang. And that's about um, a Chinese family in the United States and um, it's a little bit lighter. It, it does deal with um, this difficult work in a hotel that they're managing and how they're being exploited. But at the same time, it is so humorous and funny and um, personal that I think any any kid or any family can relate to it.
0: So you've given me more to put onto my reading list.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As if you you probably have a lot already, so I can imagine.
0: One of the things that I really appreciate about the genre is that it's often written about young people, it's written for young people, but it is so relevant and accessible to everyone. And I think it has the power to promote these conversations, especially now that we're all together in a way that perhaps we were not before, to be able to have those conversations about difficult things, but also the relatability of how this affects people's everyday lives. As we think about this conversation, what is it that you want people reading your books to take away?
1: You know, I, I want them to take away most of all the story. Um, I think like what you're saying before, what no matter what genre we're dealing with, if it's children's books or young adult literature or classic literature, a great story is a great story is a great story, right? The format almost, it doesn't matter. It's beside the point. But for my stuff um, specifically, uh, you know, I just hope kids and and adults come away with um, enjoying it, you know, connecting with those specific characters, enjoying it as a story, as an adventure story, as a survival story. And then hopefully also, you know, taking away some of these points about diversity and race and how, identity shapes each of our lives um, and and the awareness around identity and how important that is.
0: A great story is a great story. Chandra Prasad is the author of Damselfly and the forthcoming book, Mercury Boys. Chandra, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you, Kalila. It was a real pleasure.
0: London Carter-Williams is a seventh grader from Waterbury. After attending her first protest last year, following the death of George Floyd, she wrote a book with her mom called Our First Protest. She joins us now to talk about that book. London, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. So you wrote this great new book, Our First Protest. Talk to us about the protests you attended. The protest I attended
2: back in May was a Waterbury protest which was created by a woman named Julia West. It was a very peaceful protest. At one point it got a little chaotic, but for the most part, it was very calm.
0: So we were seeing a lot of protests and and a lot of gatherings across the summer. What was this particular protest about?
2: This protest was about equal rights and justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many more.
0: So, Lyndon, a lot of people may say, look, you're really young, but you were aware of what was going on and you wanted to be a part of it to raise your voice. Were you scared to be at the protest?
2: At one point I was, but for the most time, for the most part, I felt safe.
0: So who did you go to the protest with?
2: I went to the protest with my mom, my sister and a few of our friends.
0: So you had this opportunity to experience this, to raise your voice, to create your signs with your mom and your sister and your friends. And it sounds like the protest had a real impact on you. Why did you want to write the book? I wanted
2: to write this book because I wanted to inspire others and let them know that their voices can be heard.
0: So, London, we're excited that you are inspiring others, that you are using your experience to do that. So I have to ask, you've written this first book. Do you want to write more books? Possibly. So what are you thinking about writing about?
2: I think I want to stick on the same topic, maybe not a book about my first protest, but a book about protests in general.
0: So one of the things we know is that every time in this country when there's been a big movement, it's been about young people, people like you who were fed up and wanted to say something and do something. What is it that you want other kids who read your book? What is it that you want them to know or to learn? Um, I want
2: them to learn that sadly, this is the world that we live in. And I feel like we can make a change, but it depends on what we do and which way we do it.
0: So who are the people that you look up to when you think about who's making a change?
2: Hmm. Let's see my mom, and people are part of the NAACP.
0: So little birdie tells me, London, that you received a note from Congresswoman Johanna Hayes congratulating you on writing the book and for being such a great citizen of Waterbury. How did you feel when you read that note?
2: Um, I felt very excited and it made me really happy.
0: What are the types of things that you like to read?
2: Well, one of my favorite books is The Outsiders or The Giver, but other than that, I would like to read any type
0: of book. London, that's exciting. I'm listening to you talk about the books that you enjoy, and I'm thinking, I like that book too. And reading is this really great experience because it allows us to see the world beyond where we are, but as you have done, you can also use your voice to be a part of that London, as we wrap our conversation today, what is something that makes London Carter Williams excited? Writing. Writing is good. What's your favorite subject in school? English. That's great. Well, London Carter Williams is a seventh grader from Waterbury, Connecticut, and she is author of the book, Our First Protest. London, if people want to buy your book and they want to support you, how can they buy the book?
2: They can go on barnesandnoble.com, Walmart, Amazon, anything like that, but it's
0: online only. Exciting. And so we look forward to seeing more from London Carter-Williams and reading more for your future. London, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: That was 12-year-old Waterbury student London Carter-Williams, author of her book, Our First Protest. Coming up on Disrupted, Lauren Anderson, co-owner of People Get Ready Bookstore in New Haven. She talks about what her store is doing to engage community. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, that's after the break. Welcome back to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour we're talking about young adult literature. Now authors are actively writing stories to attract readers of diverse backgrounds. But how do they reach children and young adults looking to connect with those characters? Our next guest is Lauren Anderson, co-owner of People Get Ready Bookstore New Haven. Lauren talked about what trends she's seeing in the young adult genre.
3: I, mean, I think YA literature is one of the most exciting sort of sectors of the book industry right now. Um, not just for YA readers, but also for all of us. I mean, I will, I will confess, I am a I am a lover of YA literature. And I think that like young folks are really hungry. You know, they're, they've probably always been hungry. Right. And they just, their, their appetite has been unmet, but they want books where they see themselves, where they see their lived experiences. They want books that are written by people who are, um, who are insiders to those experiences so that they Actually, resonate with them when they, there's nothing worse than reading a book that's supposed to be about someone like you, and you can tell that the person who wrote it doesn't know a thing about who you actually are. I think that the book industry has been um, working hard. You know, it's in many ways, of course, like so many things long overdue, but to really celebrate and amplify what are, you know, being talked about as own voices, authors. Um, And, you know, I think with so much going on in the world, young folks uh, are looking to adults but they're also looking to resources uh, to media and and to books to help them make sense of the issues that they're experiencing firsthand but also that they're you know witnessing um, on the news and in the public discourse and Um, And so I think that it's kind of a a mix of a mix of all of that and um, and a really exciting time to be a reader and a really exciting time to be picking books um, for young readers.
0: Let's talk about that authenticity point, because young people are, are very clear when something feels inauthentic or it feels forced. And the word diversity has become this catch all that means everything and nothing at once. So, YA literature has this potential to really define and lift up diversity in ways that may not be as simplistic as adults try to define it, but also to challenge this idea again of authenticity, who's represented in the stories, but also who's telling the stories. So, what does that diversity and that inclusion look like within the space of YA literature?
3: Mm. Um, well, you know, I think it, it looks like a lot of different things. I mean, I think, um, and I mean, the space, I mean, the first thing that might be helpful to think about is like, what's the space of YA literature? It's, it's both kind of who's writing, but it's also whose books are getting (laughs) purchased and promoted and celebrated, whose books are being reviewed. Um, you know, I always think about, uh, the owner of Essawan Books in Los Angeles, who was, his name is James Fugate, he was talking about one of his favorite um, Toni Morrison books, which happened to be the book Home. And he said, you know, it's not a book that gets a ton of like sort of critical attention. It wasn't like particularly well reviewed. And a lot of that has to do with who the reviewers are. (laughs) Like who are the people getting to tap books as authentic or to tap them as particularly powerful those folks are often not um, insiders to the perspectives that are foregrounded in in texts. And so I think the space of why literature is changing in part because there are so many amazing authors and people representing and fighting for authors who are really like taking these issues on um, institutionally. And um, I say institutionally because it's like, you could have great books that never get promoted or never get to the bookshelf or, even simple things like um, what gets faced out in a in a mainstream bookstore, you know, what catches the eye, who gets the prime placement. I mean, all of that is related to YA literature. And I think that, you know, people are becoming more critical consumers. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, folks are playing catch up in a lot of ways, but but also working hard. Like I know I, I used to be a teacher and um, of young kids and have worked with teachers as a teacher educator for ages. I know so many teachers who are doing this work all the time who are reading just voraciously um, and, and trying to become more cognizant of what's out there so they can connect young people to books that really speak to them. Um, you know, if if I'm, a cis white uh, woman, I'm maybe not the the best person to be talking about a book that's by a, a trans author and features a trans protagonist, right? Uh, it's young folks and folks in the in the trans community who are better positioned um, in a lot of ways to um, to speak to whether those books really hit hit the mark. And, and I think that kind of all of us <clears throat> who care a lot about books um, are really trying um, to make sure that those those voices that need to be uplifted in YA are. Um, and there are tons of good examples of, of you know recent books that I think have gotten their <laughs> gotten their due, you know, something like King and the Dragonflies, which is in some ways a middle grades book, but um, a national book award nominee um, by Case and Calendar. Um, and you know, just a, a whole bunch more um, that are Sort of addressing um, intersectional identities and addressing this, you know, putting in quotations, diversity in much more robust ways than I think uh, literature for young folks has um, has 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 historically. Although there have always been amazing, you know, folks writing for young people, um, it's just not maybe been as much of a focus explicitly. Um, as it has been recently to sort of work against the grain of white stream publishing and um, and bookstore control,
0: so let's talk about the tension that I hear embedded in what you just said. You You are an educator, you want to expose people to the fullness of literature in terms of content, in terms of, you know, area, identity, and also author, but you're also a business owner. (laughs) So it it has to be more than just, here are the books I want people to read or the experiences I want people to have. I also need to sell these books so Mm -hmm. I can keep the doors open, quote unquote, and do that. How do you, as a bookstore owner, to curate this space, Mm. how do you balance that tension?
3: Yeah, that's such a good question. And I will not, I will... (laughs) I will front um, my response by saying we are new to all of this, you know, we're a new business, Um, never been business owners before. So we're like learning a lot as we go. I think, you know, talking about people get ready in particular, you know, we're a small space and we were really clear um, from jump. That we weren't going to try to be everything to everybody. We called ourselves a book space for a reason. It's a word I don't think um, that existed before, although I don't know, um, because we wanted to really be saying explicitly that we are a cross between a community reading room um, and an independent bookstore. And so what that means is you can come and make a purchase, but you can also come if you're not in a position to make a purchase in order to encounter Books. Now, of course, to your point, <laughs> you gotta keep the lights on. I think that um I think that what both Dolores and I have always had faith in, <clears throat> and you know, I've I've taught about children's literature for quite a long time, um, is that there's a huge demand. Um, and it's almost like a willful uh refusal. You know, I think that um Mark Lamont Hill, who opened Uncle Bobby's books in Philadelphia, talked about how people would say to him, like, you know, black folks aren't going to buy books. <laughs> it's like He was just like, I actually think you're totally wrong. Like everything in my experience says you are wrong, 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 wrong. And, you know, look at his bookstore, which has been thriving. Um, so, you know, we have a small space and we basically shelve books that are intended to represent those who are underrepresented in book publishing, um, and that are also books that affirm our local community. Um, so we have to know who lives in our neighborhood, <laughs> which of course we do because we, we live in our neighborhood, um, and to really curate a collection that speaks to them. And I think, you know, over the summer especially, I think there was like a real surge in people's recognition, Um, and when I say peoples in this case, I mean a broader cross-section of people than those who live in New Haven. And I'm speaking about um, well-meaning white folks in particular who are kind of like, come into consciousness about just how far they are from understanding (laughs) um, the issues of the day and that books are a way to become more informed about, Perspectives other than their own, and also about topics that their own schools and um, social circles just haven't educated them around. So you know, in terms of like demand for books, we have people who might say like, I'm here to pick up, you know, uh, I'm trying to diversify my classroom library and I know you all are the place to go, but I also really love to read Nick Sparks romance novels. <laughs> and so, you know, we'll, we'll help them get a uh, Nick Sparks. It's not like we won't sell that to them, but it's not what we're gonna give shelf space to. Um, and in some ways staying small helps us um, have a really tight focus around the things that we are first and foremost about.
0: Why the name People Get Ready?
3: Mm. <laughs> so many reasons, you know, Curtis Mayfield <laughs> being one of them. Um, you know, the, the amazing and historic song People Get Ready. Also because, you know, People Get Ready has the, the pun in it, if you will, of People Get Reedy. Um, and kind of all people people getting, um, getting a love of books, no matter kind of how they're coming to the book space. Um, you know, we really believe that if you're a reluctant reader today, or you don't think of yourself as somebody who quote unquote reads or loves reading, you can be a different, um, you can have a different relationship to reading starting tomorrow. And we really see ourselves, I think, as wanting to be a part of that for young people, but for all people. Um, I also think that, like, you know, books, and I'll just speak for myself personally, you know, books have really been a go to. um, And I think I'm certainly not alone in this. When you want to get ready to do something that you're not yet ready for, right, who do you go to? You go to your people and you go to resources. Um, Books help you imagine possible futures. Uh, Books help you affirm parts of yourself. You know, like when James Baldwin said, you you think your pain is unique and then you read and it's like, oh, I'm connected to all these other people that that have experienced what I've experienced um, in one way or another, while at the same time I have my own beautiful and unique story to tell. Um, I think People Get Ready is really um, a name that captures our desire to connect to that to that legacy um that's so much about affirmation representation fairness justice um, but also about forward-looking um support for who you want to become um, you know you can't be what you can't see and um especially when it comes to young folks putting books in front of them that just show them a multiplicity of of options for themselves and also give them like like sort of food for their mind to imagine things that might not be on the page, but might be nurtured, right, by what's on the page. That's all a big, huge part of it. So, you know, that's kind of a long response to the, to the name, but I think it's, it's a really sincere one. It's about connecting backward to legacy and also connecting forward to like, uh, to a better future personally and, and collectively
0: so that sense of connection whether it's through time and space experience or connection to community and the new ways that this year has forced us to reimagine community as we think about the future we want to see and one of the things that i think about a lot as an educator and as a parent would be the ways that we connect to young people who have shown up in so many ways this year. Mm -hmm. So in the time that we have left, and let me ask you, what would you say to our listeners who want two or three recommendations of books that could help them make sense or or make these connections to young people and books that aren't necessarily, you know, New York Times bestsellers, but Mm. ones that speak to the themes that you've mentioned throughout this convo.
3: In the YA category, uh, a really wonderful book that I recently read is uh, Kim Johnson's This Is My America, um, which is a a book about a young woman protagonist whose brother uh, is and, and father are kind of um, falsely accused of, of things. Um, and it brings up a lot of um, issues of the day that I think even if you're reading just, it's a great story with great characters, um, but it also shows what I think young people are often up against and experiencing in ways that like young folks themselves might be able to connect to, but would also be like really educative for for adults. Another would be um, the wonderful book, uh, middle grades book kind of in a similar way, Um, from the desk of Zoe Washington Mm -hmm. by Connecticut's own Janae Marks. That's amazing. (laughs) A beautiful middle grades novel, uh, also a young female protagonist who is, um, gets involved in justice-oriented work kind of through her own experience. I would say also the the book King and the Dragonflies that I mentioned earlier by um, Case and Callender about an amazing um, young character named King who is uh, sort of recovering from the loss of his own brother and kind of answering questions for himself about his own identity in the voice of a 12-year-old. And I think it's written so beautifully in conveying this young person's experience moving through the world around race, around sexuality, around um, family relationships, that it's almost like getting a bird's eye view into what it's like to be 12, (laughs) which a lot of adults could be reminded of, right? 12-year-olds want a snow day um and then so do adults so do adults right you know it's like you have to you learn so much i think from being immersed in a character and so books that can do that for you and bring you back to what what it was like to be 12 years old but also how different it is to be 12 years old right now than it it maybe was when you were 12. um and then in terms of just books for adults i'll i you know, and for all of us, there's a really wonderful book called This Book is Anti Racist by Tiffany Jewell. She came to um, People Get Ready right before we had to close down. Um, the book includes a poem by New Haven's own Amelia Allen Sherwood. <laughs> and it's really a book that just introduces um, young folks and um, adults. I mean, I recommend it to everybody to what it means to be anti racist, really. Um, It's accessible. It's profound. It's personal. It offers exercises and sort of like reflective prompts that really can get people of any age thinking in particular about um, racial identity and their relationship to structural advantage and disadvantage. It's a book for everyone. And it's also a book for folks. It's like, if you're a, a reader, that's like, just doesn't feel very versed even in the lexicon, like the the words of the day, like what is cisgender versus transgender? It's gonna be a really wonderful primer for you um, in terms of moving you forward and it will help you talk to young people about the issues that are really at the forefront of their lives.
0: And I hope that others will take that away and support small independent booksellers as well. Lauren Anderson is co-owner with Dolores Williams of People Get Ready Bookstore in New Haven. Lauren, thank you so much.
3: Thanks so much for having us here. We really appreciate it.
0: Wondering about all those great recommendations from Chandra and Lauren? We'll post the complete list on our website. Thanks again to all our guests. This episode first aired in December and was produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. The rest of our team now includes James Scoble Wolf and Shekinah Collier. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. Don't need you just train to Jordan picking up passengers coast to coast faith is the key, open the door